Hey, good morning and welcome to Breakthrough Walls. I'm Ken Walls and I'm your host and I am unbelievably excited about the guest I have on today. Like this lady is uh, like, well, you'll you'll see um, she's been she's been on Oprah more than once. Um, she's the known as the the mother of coaching. She started started training coaches when coaching wasn't even a business back in 1974. She's a New York Times number one best-selling author. She's written 18 books, and I know she's got some more cooking. So without any more from me, I want to welcome Dr. Cherie Carter-Scott to the show. Dr. Cherie, welcome. Thank you, Ken. I'm just so pleased to be here with you and your listeners and viewers. Oh, I am so uh, I'm I'm just so honored to have you on the show. Like I've, I I don't even like I, I know I'm going to get tongue twisted throughout this whole thing talking to you because I know you now. We've had a couple of meetings and and had some conversations, and you're one of the wisest people I know. So I'm very um, grateful to have you on here. So um, thank you. So you know what I I, I created this show. Um, you know, I've been through a lot in life. Most people have. And, and you know, people have a tendency of hitting these walls in life and getting stuck there and not know how to get unstuck. And you are the, the originator of helping people have a breakthrough, you know. And I, I really I'm excited to hear some of your wisdom and knowledge that you're going to share. So let's start with, you know, maybe telling people where you were born and raised. Well, I was born in New Jersey, and I was raised between New York City, Manhattan, and the Jersey Shore. And my family drove back and forth every week, weekends in the country in New Jersey and weeks in New York. My father was a stockbroker on the New York Stock Exchange, and he had a seat. And we went to school in New York, and my parents wanted us to have a, a country you know, experience with horses and trees and the ocean. So we literally went back and forth every week, but that was my early childhood. Wow! So you spent so you spent a lot of time in the city, though. Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, New York is pretty much home to me in a lot of ways. When I get there, I just click into the rhythm and feel right at home as soon as I hit the ground. Wow. That's awesome. You know, I've only been to New York one time, like in the city. I think I told you that before. <laughs> it's an unbelievable city, though, right? So so yeah. growing up in, and so you went back and forth. You had horses. You had all of that. We had um, about 26 acres on the Jersey Shore. So we had our own private beach. We had tennis court we had three horses we had chickens and my father was a world-class dahlia flower raiser that was his passion in life when he went to cornell and his father said milton there's no money in flowers better make some other choices so he became a stockbroker by profession but a horticulturist by hobby oh wow so you probably learned a lot about that as well well, we had flowers, fresh flowers on the tables around the house almost every day of my childhood. And that was something that gave my father enormous pleasure to make flowers and to have beautiful flowers decorating our home. 
Wow, that's incredible. So, so as you were you were growing up, you were back and forth between the city and 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 Jersey. Um, so, like, was it a was it a private school you were going to? I went to a private girls' school on 91st and 5th called Convent of the Sacred Heart. We wore uniforms, and we were well-behaved young ladies. Yeah. We learned how to curtsy and wear white gloves, and we walked in silent ranks between classes. So it was highly structured, disciplined, and um, you were punished if you didn't behave properly. So I was, I was pretty much of a good girl, yeah. even though I did terrible, terrible things as a child, like when my friends wanted to have their ears pierced, I was the designated doctor. So that was... <laughs> that was... That was something that I did with ice cubes and needles, and I felt very comfortable piercing ears. As a matter of fact, somebody said to me when I was a little bit older, have you ever thought of becoming a doctor? I said, no, I'm just an ear piercer. <laughs> That's funny. But eventually you became one anyway, right? <laughs> just, just a... Yeah, a PhD, yes, exactly. But in graduate school, they didn't require me to pierce any ears. Right, right. So, so where did you go to, um, where did you end up? So you graduated, I guess, high school in New York. Is that right? Yeah. As a matter of fact, in my childhood, the thing that really attracted me besides religion, which I was always straight A's in religion and I loved religious science, I was really attracted to the theater. Now, if you look at religion, especially the Catholic religion and the theater, there are a lot of similarities between the two. Number one, the priest wears costumes, and he looks really shiny and elegant and purple and gold and just lovely colors. And there's a lot of pomp and circumstance. There's a lot of singing that goes on. There's also uh, feelings that come up. Maybe they're guilt, but they're feelings. And so in my childhood, between loving religion, I loved the theater passionately. And I was in every possible play I could be in. I even wrote plays. I performed plays in New Jersey on the staircase. I invited the family. I mean, I was really, really uh, a thespian as a very young, at a very young age. Wow. You sound like my eight-year-old daughter. <laughs> or my eight-year-old daughter totally. sounds like you. She's always exactly. like, all right, come on, everybody, get out here. I have a show I'm going to perform. That's right. <laughs> I'm like, oh, That's now you know exactly how I was when I was eight. That's amazing. That's, yeah, same, same. And wow. so what happened during my childhood is that I always wanted to go uh, to acting school and become an actor. I begged my mother to send me to ballet school. She said no. I begged her to send me to tap dancing school. She said no. So every time I would ask for something related to the theater, the answer was severely no. But that's what I loved. I love the theater. I love the creativity. I love the fun. I love putting on new personas and being different people. I was passionate about it. But the answer was always consistently no. So we had this difficult conversation as I was nearing the end of high school, which is called What's Next? Now, my mother, of course, wanted me to go to a private women's college, preferably Catholic, like Catholic university, someplace where she knew I would be segregated and insulated and protected from the rest of the world, and I wanted to go to acting school. So we are a little bit at loggerheads about that. <laughs> yeah. Who who won? <laughs> it was a negotiation. Actually. Oh, it was? Yeah, it was. <laughs> it ended up being a non-sectarian two-year college for women outside Boston, 
where I went to appease her because there were no boys around, which she was very skeptical about me going to a co-ed school. Um, and it didn't have to be Catholic, which is I wanted to be able to kind of spring into the real world and get an exposure to what life was like beyond the incubated world that I had experienced up to date. Wow. So, so you went into, um, you went into college, you went into, and, and you started doing a lot more of the learning how to be a professional actor. Well, actually I went to Bradford college and in Haverhill, Massachusetts, and I was the first student in the history of the school, which went back, you know, over a hundred years to produce direct and, um, create a show at that school because they you know when I said I, I want to I found a show that I really want to produce and direct and they said well no students don't do that here and I said well I I'm a student and I do that and I want to do that and so I had to convince the the powers that be to allow me to take over the courtyard in the library area and to be able to produce my show which I did Wow. And I had local auditions, and I had boys at that time. They were young men. Yeah. And students who auditioned for the show, and I put it together, and we had a production. So it was something that I've never done, but I didn't have any doubt that I could do it. And so we went forward and made it happen. So it was one of the things that I did along with being in whatever shows were being produced. That is awesome. My wife is on the stream, by the way, watching. She said, that's so okay. cool. Yeah, Jill's on here. So <clears throat> I know, Jill, I know that Jill, you guys like love each other. It's amazing. So, so, yeah, hi, Jill. so with, so you, you, now I know at some point, and I don't know where, this sounds like it was in your early 20s that all of this was happening. 18. 18. Wow. Yeah. And you're just like taking on the world. You're like, I, I don't care what the rules are. I want to do this. <laughs> so what happened is um, when when I graduated from high school, I went to France and I studied in the University of Dijon. And um, I got my parents to let me do that because I said knowing French would be very helpful in life. And I had studied French in school since I was in third grade. So I had a good basis. I had a good vocabulary and grammar. And so I convinced them to let me do that. It was always a negotiation. Yeah. And then after that, I had three summers in summer stock in Massachusetts. Williamstown Summer Theater is where I spent most of my summers um, with actors, building sets, uh, tutoring, um, painting, uh, costumes, everything associated with the theater. I was totally immersed, and we did a show a week for 10 weeks, and that was one of my just most ecstatic times. I just love being in that world of creativity and creating something to make people elevated, um, wow. to have them feel and experience something beyond their own lives, and to be a part of that just inspired me so deeply. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. You know, Jill, I don't know that you even know this, but Jill actually studied in France as well in college. She, oh, she speaks she speaks fluent French. <laughs> Very fluent. Oh. Yeah. Then our next conversation has to be en français. <laughs> 
Right. She does that. Like she'll talk to. I have some Canadian friends that she'll talk to in French. It's amazing. So so um, so with with the um, so you ended up like at some, I, I'm try, I guess at some point you 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 made a shift, right? I I, I think um, and maybe not. Maybe I've got it wrong, but you made a shift in into like really helping people on a global scale. Okay, so you have to remember that my mother was really against the theater. Okay. You know, and, and it kind of goes back to when I was six years old, and, my, and a nun said to me in school, what do you want to be when you grow up? And at six years old, you don't know what the right answers are. Right. You haven't gotten the cheat sheet about don't say this and do say that. So I spontaneously looked at her, this nun, and I said to her, I said, well, I'd like to be a priest. And she looked at me with sheer horror and said, no, you don't. And I said, yes, I do. And she said, no, you don't. And I said, yes, I do. And she said, you do not. And I thought, okay, better give it up. <laughs> and she said, she said, you can be a nun. Oh, and wow. I said, I don't want to be a nun. She said, well, you can't be a priest and God won't let you. And I thought to myself, how does she know? <laughs> and I thought, better behave yourself. So I just bit my tongue and I said, okay. Now, I didn't want to be a nun because nuns wore black and they were in the back of the church yeah. and they were quiet. And I wanted to be the priest in the front of the church in the pretty costumes and I wanted to be giving the sermons. Oh my God, I love it. Now, I never knew when I was six years old there was a gender issue with the Catholic Church. I just thought that it was coincidental that he was a guy in the front of the room. But I didn't think that they were going to discriminate against me because I was a woman. It just didn't even occur to me. Yeah. So shortly thereafter, about a year later, my mother turned to me at seven and said, Cherie, what would you like to be when you grow up? And I thought, okay, can't say priest. I know how that ends up. <laughs> so I'm thinking, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And so I thought, okay, I know. I want to be an actress. And she looked at me and she said, no, you don't. Oh, thought, geez. oh here we go again. <laughs> I am... I'm getting really good at giving the wrong answers. So before I decided to argue with her, I thought, just ask. So I said, what should I want to be? Very wow. important question. Wow. Because she had the answer. And she said to me, you should want to be sure. Because if your husband dies, you can support your children. You, I'm sorry. You and know what? Moment, she, you froze up, right? It, the we lost okay. the internet there for a second. She said okay. you should want to be a teacher. A teacher. So if your husband dies, you can support your children. Oh my gosh! Now you see the assumptions in that. Yeah. Number one, I was going to get married. Number two, I was going to have children. Number three, I wouldn't have a career at all. And number four, I had a fallback plan just in case he died so I wouldn't be destitute and stranded. Oh, my Lord, have mercy. The things so that, that we that, learn. That was the plan that my mother had in mind for me. And so I, I got the message, and wow. I responded to her by saying, okay. And every time from then on, from 7 until 20, when people said to me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I knew the answer. I want to be a teacher. So if my husband dies, I can support my children. Oh. And the response was so positive and affirming and enthusiastic, I thought, I've nailed it. 
Oh my gosh. Wow. That's incredible. So, um, did you become a teacher? I did. Of course. I was a good girl. I became a teacher for my mother. Now, the thing is that that's the moment it was solidified between the age of six and seven when I became outer-centered. And what I mean by outer-centered is that I'd look to other people for the answers for my life. Yeah. What do you think? What's your opinion? What's your perspective? I mean, what, what do you, I would ask other people because I got that message early on. My answers are wrong. Oh my And don't God. trust them and don't respect them and don't honor them. Look to other people to get the right answer so you don't get in trouble. Oh my gosh. This there's such a powerful message in what you're saying. That's probably everybody on this stream, <laughs> quite honestly. Everybody that's gonna see this has experienced some form of that, right? Yeah. So what happened to me is I became outer centered and as I was in my teenage years and beyond, I would start the process, you know, like, do you think I should get my hair cut or should I grow it? Do you think I should become more vegetarian or should I not? Or do you think I should go to college or to acting school? Do you think I should wear this or wear that? Do you think I should get these heels? Do you think everything was outer centered? I could not effectively make a decision on my own without checking with other people first to make sure that I wasn't making a mistake. That early imprint was so deep and solid that I didn't trust myself at all to make decisions about my life. Wow. So did, did that, has that changed? <laughs> a little bit. That's a, that um, was a rhetorical question, by the way. But so, so my, my mother died. Yeah. Go ahead. My mother died when I was, my mother died when I was 20. Oh. My father remarried shortly thereafter, moved to Florida, sold everything in New Jersey and New York. And I, then didn't have a home to go home to. I was kind of orphaned at 20. And I didn't have any answers. I didn't know what I wanted. So I started asking other people, what do you think I should do with my life? Because my sisters were married and in their own worlds. And I was pretty much alone. And I didn't really know where to turn, what to do. I just had no direction. So I started asking people. That was my thing. I would interview people and ask them their opinions. One person said, oh, you should go into law. You'd be very good debating in a courtroom. I thought, law, all those books, all those rules, all those laws. I don't know if law is the right thing. Then somebody else said, you know, you should go into real estate. You'd be really good at selling houses. I thought, houses? Am I really connected to houses? I don't even really have a home anymore. Oh, houses. I thought, I don't know if that resonates either. Somebody else said you should go into medicine because of that ear piercing experience. You know, you'd be good at medicine. I thought, not so sure. All that blood, <laughs> mm, all those books, years and years and years of study. I thought, maybe it's not medicine. And then somebody else said, well, why don't you sell vitamins? You know, you like health. Why don't you go into selling vitamins? Everything people said to me didn't really connect with me. Wow. And that was a turning point as well. Because at that moment, I decided, if this is not working, we have to try a different approach. Yeah. Wow. So, what, what I started to do was to pray and meditate and make lists and to see if I could find some place inside of me that could give me or that God could give me some answers to this life 
that was completely unstructured, unscripted, and uncertain. So I, I said to God, I said, I really want to know what I'm doing here. I want to know the purpose of my life. Please help me find my direction. Send me a message. Let me know what you think. So shortly thereafter, I started getting messages. And <laughs> what I message is something that's illogical, illogical, irrational, unreasonable, inconvenient, and you, you will definitely not. I started getting messages. And the first message was, you are a catalyst. Now, I wasn't really certain what a catalyst was. I'd heard about catalytic converters and cars, but I wasn't really sure what a catalyst was. I <laughs> right. broke it up. Second message was, you will work in growth and development. Now, I knew what that was, but that had a pretty broad spectrum. Growth and development could be anything. Yeah. And then the third message came another couple of weeks later, and it said, you have a talent for working with people. So I thought, okay, so I'm going to work with people as a catalyst in their growth and development. Now, what do I do with that? Do I put that on a business card? Do I go to networking meetings and say, hi, I'm a catalyst, and I work with people in their growth and development? I said, I'm not certain what to do with that. That's really a strange answer. It's not exactly a job description or a title. Right. It's kind of weird. I just said, you know, I asked for a message and you sent me three messages, but I have no clue what to do with catalysts working with people in their growth and development. That's really bizarre. So what happened is a friend of mine called me and he said, would you work with me in my company? And I said, well, I'm trying to figure out the purpose of my life, but thank you for calling. Now, he called a second time. And he said, I really want you to work with me. And I said, you know, I appreciate your compliment, but there are people who actually do this for a living. They've been trained. They know what they're doing. They're competent at this. I don't know anything about business. I'm probably not the right person for you to call. He called a third time, and I finally said to him, I don't get it. Why are you calling me? And he said, I'm calling you because I trust you. I said, it's great that you trust me. Thank you for the compliment, but I don't know anything. He said, that could be helpful. I said, let me get it straight. You're willing to pay me your hard-earned money, knowing full well that I don't know anything? He said, yes, that's right. I said, I accept. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's my first official job as a coach. What, what, kind of a, what, what type of a business was it? What, what kind of a business did he, he have? He had handled billings for physicians. And so it right was up your alley billing service. Huh? I said right up your alley, jokingly. Like no. I had no, like, cl no clue. Yeah. No clue whatsoever. Wow. So what I what I did is I went into the company, I looked around, I observed, I made notes, I talked to people, I interviewed them. I was watching how things functioned. Right. And because I had no preconceived ideas, I was naive and pure enough to be able to look, listen, observe, and gather data. So the fifth day, after my four days of observation, we met in his office, outside my office, and he said to me, what did you see? What's going on? I said, well, before I tell you my observations, I really want to know what it is that you want. He said, what I want? I said, yes, you called me, so you need to be in some position of, having a clue that you want something different than you currently have. There's 
obviously now, and then there's the ideal. So let's talk about that. And he said, well, I haven't really thought about that. I just knew that things aren't exactly the way I wanted them. And I said, well, let's explore that together. So I knew somewhere inside me that in order for me to help him, we had to have a destination, a goal, an outcome. And he was the one to articulate that to me because he was the, he was the chief and he was going to be the one who was going to make it happen. I wasn't going to make it happen. He was. So he needed to have that clearly in his mind. What came out of the whole thing is that one part of him wanted a huge company that he could run from anywhere in the world, and the other part of him wanted a very small, intimate, family-run team. And they were opposite of each other. And so I said to him, sounds like this and that, you got to choose because right now it sounds like you have one foot on the accelerator, one foot on the brake, and you're an idol. You're not really moving forward because you're at cost purposes with yourself. Well, he left my office kind of illuminated and shiny as if he had discovered something really profound. And he started talking to people about his friend who asked great questions. Uh, wow. And the phone started to ring. And then I felt very uncomfortable because I felt wholly unqualified, because I seriously didn't know anything. But people said, can you ask me questions? And I said, well, yeah, I can. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but you'll find your answers, because I don't know your answers for you. You'll find your own answers, but I'll ask you questions to help you find them. And they said, okay. And people started lining up, and my schedule started filling up. Wow. And before I knew it, I was known as the woman who asked great questions. And if you want to find your own answers... She's the one to help you penetrate your confusion, doubt, uncertainty, and fear and connect with your truth, your own answers. And that was in October 1974. That is unbelievable. Like you, 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 I'm trying to, let me piece together. So your experience in the business world um, or coaching or anything was, was, somewhat limited. I mean, you'd been to France, right? I'd been to France. I'd been in summer stock for three summers. I'd watched my father yeah. when he was working at the stock exchange. And I loved going to stationary stores. But you just had this, I can tell, um, you just had this intuitiveness. Well, I wasn't afraid to ask questions. Right. And I had a lot of curiosity. And sometimes I would ask questions that were maybe inappropriate or maybe offensive, but I knew how to ask permission to ask those questions if I was going to offend someone. Right. So I could say, hey, Ken, can I ask you a question that you might not want to answer? And if you don't want to answer it, it's okay, but I really want to ask it. And so I'd kind of knock on the door and ask permission. And then you'd say, well, Go ahead and ask it, and I'll make my own decision if I want to answer it. <laughs> right. And then, yeah. Wow. That's incredible. I mean, that is absolutely incredible. So so in 1974, October of 1974, you, like, officially became a, a coach. And I didn't actually know what it was that I was doing. What I knew for sure is I didn't know the answers for other people. And I knew that I had questions because I was curious. Wow. And I knew I could create a safe environment for them to be able to say whatever it was that was in their heart because I didn't have the judgment 
you know, you shouldn't, you should, you better, you, but I mean, I knew from my childhood, from the example of priest and actress, that creating a safe environment is not saying you can't do that or you shouldn't do that, but that's not okay. I knew that safety, emotional safety, was one of the most important things that you can create for a person to be able to reveal their truth that may even be hidden from themselves. Wow, that's incredible. So, so your schedule got filled up. You had companies or individuals calling on you, or was it both? Both, and th- th- it was really interesting because I was still in amazement. You know, I, I really thought this is happening, and then I connected the dots, and I thought catalyst for people in growth and development. I get it. That was the message I got, but I couldn't figure it out because it didn't make any sense to me at the time. And now that I had all these new clients who I was asking questions to, I said, okay, I get it. I see the connection. And what was happening is that people were saying, I see what I want. I see the vision, but I'm disorganized and I'm in my own way. So I created the self-management workshop. Wow. Workshop I put together for people to be able to align their vision with their behaviors and their organization so that they weren't at odds with their own um, managing their daily lives. And then clients say, well, you know, it's, it's going well now. I'm organized and I'm managing myself, but um, I don't trust myself. I don't totally believe in myself. Okay, so I wrestled with that one for a while, and then it came to me that we were supposed to do a two-day workshop in which people would connect with themselves, their essence, their real core essence, and start loving themselves and trusting themselves and believing in themselves and going for their dreams and not holding themselves back. So that was called... um, initially called self-esteem workshop and then we changed it to inner negotiation when we spread to Europe and they said we can't sell self-esteem here but we can sell inner negotiation so it was the same workshop it just changed names wow <clears throat> that's incredible so <laughs> you're like and when we went to Europe with it so like which is unbelievable because most people don't do that like you are like I, I think that and that that's what this show is about because you and I, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. You were just a, an enormous thinker, an enormous thinker. Like you didn't say, well, hey, there's 50 states in, in the U.S. and let's just start covering those. You were like, there's 50 states here, but oh, my gosh, look at Europe. <laughs> let's go there, too. Well, what happened, it, it was pretty organic. Because as we have expanded through, you know, four continents, what's happened is somebody has come through the workshop somehow, some way, and they've said, would you come here? Would you come to my backyard? Would you come to my area? So when I, in um, early 80s, I was at the European Management Forum in Davos, Switzerland, with a colleague of mine, and I met this gentleman from Netherlands. And he said, let's keep in touch and see what it is that we can do together. And we did. And then at one point he said, can I send my daughter over to apprentice or intern with you in your company? And I said, sure, sounds like a great idea. So Christine came over to the States and she worked with us in our company. 
And then she said to her dad, Dad, we really need these programs in Holland. And he said, we have everything in Holland. We don't need any programs. <laughs> and she said, Dad, seriously, we really do. So what happened is that her dad came over to Los Angeles, took our inter-negotiation workshop, and said, I would like to sponsor you in the Netherlands and become your first licensee in Holland. And that's how we got to Europe initially in 1988. So that was the jump abroad. Now, Holland had not been on my radar screen or my business plan. And so it was a brand new opportunity to go and meet the Dutch, see windmills, eat cheese, and learn about the Dutch culture. Wow. That, the that's, Netherlands. That's mind. That's just mind-boggling. So, so you. Um, but I, back up just a little bit because you you have these these workshops and and I, I'm I'm wondering. I guess I'm curious. Did you just like go? Okay, we're doing this workshop, and I have to create the material to to teach at these workshops that that people are going to want to hear, and then you just started developing these workshops. Okay. So I remember I had been trained as a teacher from my mother right. and I had taught school in the Denver public schools right. and I taught school in Aspen at the high school. Yeah. So I wasn't necessarily a, a full blown curriculum designer, but I did know about teaching and curriculum and I did have a knack for it. You know what? People often call me as an unconscious competent. I don't know what I don't know. Right. But I happen to intuitively, as you said, intuitively know certain things that just came with the package. It's like somebody who can sit down and play the piano by ear. Yeah. You know, they don't know how they know that. They haven't had any lessons. They can just sit there and play. Wow. And I had that knack in terms of curriculum design, teaching, coaching, the areas that I've gone into in my professional life. So I had the knack to begin with. Um, but I didn't know that I had that capability because none of those things were actually taught in my school right. or college. After I went to you know, Bradford, I went to University of Denver, completed my BA, and then I went to graduate school at Fielding Institute, or now it's called Fielding Graduate University in Santa Barbara. So I've actually gone on, 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 on to school to be able to get more and more educated, to be able to fill in the gaps that I thought I had, to be able to feel fully um credentialed to right. be able to do the work that I do. So, but, but how many people and, and you've, <clears throat> I mean, I know you've positively impacted the lives of, of millions and millions of people around the globe, um, which is again, mind blowing to me. And, and so, but how many people have you had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with that, you know, that they're not, because you you get it like you got that you're like okay this is my this is what my specialty is and i just need to take action on it and go but how many people do you run into in life that that they have that special gift somewhere but they bury it because mom told them they need to be a plumber or a a a, a nurse or or whatever right how many people bury that a lot of people do. As a matter of fact, if if you look at what the professions are that parents traditionally have enforced their children going into, it's engineer, doctor, lawyer, it's anything that accountant, 
predictable, stable, and secure is what parents are looking for. And they're looking for that because they're concerned about their child having a future that will allow them to be able to make a good living, have a good life, etc. So it's not necessarily the connection between the child and their gifts and talents. It's the child going into a proven, safe, stable profession where they're not going to be cast adrift. Right. To any recession or depression. Right. So, so you eventually, I know, at some point, and had you at in 1988 when you when you moved into the Netherlands, also had you written any books yet? Yes. As a matter of fact, I wrote my first book in 1977. Okay. And I wrote it because. I felt like I was saying the same things over and over again, and I was bored saying it. So I thought if I write a book or a booklet, then I can give it to people, and it can save me the time and effort of saying it every time. Right. So it was kind of coming out of boredom and efficiency. So I wrote the first book, which I thought would be the only book I would ever write, called The New Species, A Vision of the Evolution of the Human. And it was in our course which I created called the coach training, which was back in 19, just the turn of 74, 75, because our clients kept saying, can you teach me to do what you do? Can you teach me how to ask those questions? Because, I I mean, I can ask questions, sure, but I don't ask those questions. They're really (laughs) powerful, penetrating questions. And I really want to learn how to do that. And I thought, I don't know. I don't know if I can. (laughs) So... I sat down with two colleagues and I said, we have to look and see what I'm doing right because something's working and I'm not sure what it is. So they started studying me. And as they were studying me, they were noticing the components that were coming together to create this climate of emotional safety. And so, you know, they said, okay, first of all, you're suspending judgment. Secondly, you're really connecting with the client. Third of all, you're asking open-ended questions that allow them to look inside. Fourthly, you're allowing them to to envision their desired future. And then, and they started going on with all of these observations about what I was doing that I was pretty unconscious of. I just didn't know. But as they would articulate, they would say, yeah, I do do that. Yeah, I do that too. Oh, yeah, okay. But the combination of all those components together created this emotional safety environment that would allow a person to be able to look at where they were, what they wanted, and then we could manage the gap between the two together. And I could empower them to be able to move into the risk zone where they would experiment with new behaviors and new options and try on new things, actually kind of creating a new operating system for themselves from the way they were raised to what they wanted to manifest. My gosh, like you were, you were um, creating operating systems before Bill Gates was. (laughs) That's incredible. So, so you're, you're now you're moving into um, I mean, not just helping people, but helping coaches become coaches before coaching was a thing. And, exactly. and that's, in, that's incredible. So like, do you know how many coaches you've trained? 
well, you know, before you ask me that conversation of it, I've had over 10,000 coaching conversations with clients in the last close to 45 years. And I stopped counting at 10,000. I just thought, you know, I don't want to be like McDonald's counting how many hamburgers. <laughs> so um, in terms of coaches, our trainings are either 60 hours or 125 hours. And they go deep with the people. And we usually have our programs with, oh, say, 15 or 20 people. And so in the early, early days, we, I think our very first one, we had 18, but we had them twice a year. So if you're talking 20 people, two times a year, that's about 40 people in the early days. Wow. Nowadays, we have our trainings in eight different locations around the world, and we also train the coaches at Cigna Healthcare as well. So we have more trainers, more locations, more opportunities, more languages, more um remote, in-person. Uh, we have just a whole lot of capability since the technological revolution. So it's it's expanded a lot more beyond what I ever imagined. So, and, and I know that um, at some point, again, you'll have to fill in the dates for me or the time, time frames, but um, at some point you were... Um, invited to a somewhat large television program. Okay, so when I came out with Negaholics, How to Overcome Negativity and Turn Your Life Around, which was in 1989, they organized, Random House organized a whole media tour for me. Okay. And I went... Uh-oh. And I was on Oprah. Wow. I was on Oprah for the first time. And she loved it and had a lot of people on the show who would talk about their negativity. Some had a very slight case of negativity and some were more extreme. But that was the first time I was on Oprah. And wow. then when I, came, when I came out with um, If Life is a Game, These are the Rules, 10 Rules for Being Human, which were a set of 10 rules that were in our coach training that I designed in 1974 or five, yeah. and it was in session module number 11, I had the rules for being human. Now, they had been photocopied and passed around to people and friends around the world, which I, I didn't have any problem with people sharing their work, right. only they showed up in the very first Chicken Soup for the Soul book in 1994 on page 81, the rules for being human by Anonymous. Oh. Now, Yes. Oh. So that's, <laughs> that's pretty reflective of a lot of things that have happened in my life, which is doing something good and not getting credit for it. Now, wow. I just figured that was my karma, and it didn't really matter. It wasn't a big deal. So what? Who cares? I'm anonymous now. But then I got a call <laughs> from a friend, Dan Millman. Dan Millman called me and said, hey, didn't you write these rules for being human? I remember. And I said, yeah, I did. And he said, well, I think Jack Canfield should know this because he put down Anonymous in his book, and he needs to know that you wrote them. And I said, you know, it doesn't really matter that I wrote them. He said, oh, knock it off. He said, I'm going to call Jack. You should get credit for this, and that should happen now. I said, okay, so here's classic female behavior called, you know, it doesn't really matter. I don't need the credit. It's not a big deal. And it takes a man to be able to shine the light and to push you and say, stop it. 
go for it. I'm going to help advocate on your behalf. Right. Now, that's also something that's happened throughout my life very frequently. It's been a man like you who says, hey, let's put you in the light. Let's interview you. Let's let people know about you. Because number one, I was busy doing my work. Number two, my work is really fulfilling and satisfying to me. Number three, I felt a little shy about saying, look at me, look what I've done, look at how cool I am. I just thought, you know, I'm I'm fortunate, I'm blessed, I have this wonderful opportunity to do work that I'm good at, and people benefit from it, and I'm very thankful for that. That's really wonderful, and do I need more? So it was... Uh, it was a real opportunity for me to be able to um, talk to Jack. He called me on the phone. He said, Shree, did you write these? I said, yeah, I've known Jack since 1970. Wow. He said, did you write these? I said, I did. And he said, you know, let me give you credit in the next printing because I think you need the credit because it's right action. Right. I said, fine. And then people started calling me saying, hey, I love these rules for being human. Could I write a book using your rules? Now, you got to understand, one of my tragic flaws is that I'm pretty slow on the uptake. I don't connect the dots really quickly. Right. I'm, I'm just slow. That's all. You I know, get it's, it. It's not, I'm not stupid. I just don't, you know, I just don't go, oh, yeah, I got it. So yeah. I have like 30 people contacting me saying, hey, can I use your rules to write a book? And I'm thinking, well, they need to have good stories. It needs to be the right tone. It really needs to connect with the viewer, the listener, the reader. It needs to have a kind of philosophy behind it that really engages and maybe builds a bridge between mainstream and metaphysics, but not heavy-handed. It can't be prescriptive. It can't be a doctrine. It needs to present options, and all of a sudden, a big light bulb shows up over my head, and it's like... Maybe I could write the book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a banner idea, huh? <laughs> what a concept. <laughs> now, I'd written books before. I had written The New Species. I had written um, Negaholics. I'd written The Daily Journal. I had written Corporate Negaholics. I, and I'd written Negaholics No More. I had written five books in my past. So what was stopping me? I can write a book. I can write a book. I write books. I have published materials. But then I thought, well, why didn't I think of that? (laughs) I just didn't think of it. So then I I talked to a friend of mine, and I talked to my agent, and I said, I have a book idea, and it's based on my rules for being human. So we sent it into Random House, and then there was a an auction of the book and and it was sold to Broadway Books, a division of Random House. And then everything went wild. Um, I went on tour. I started promoting the book and uh, the Oprah show got wind of it and they contacted me and they said, we want to have you on the show. Again, again. Okay. A second. Again. I said, sure. Okay. Now I went on the show and it, the show, the book had not been published officially yet. And when I went on the show, it was Change Your Life TV that Oprah was doing with a bunch of different yep. people. Yep. And she turned the show over to me. And I had the full hour coaching people in the audience. Oh, my God. And Wow. What happened is she held the book up. And here, I have a copy right here. Hold on a second. 
She held it up and she said to her audience, this is the book with a powerful message and we need to have it in every home in America. So make certain that you turn off your microwave and run out and get this book right now. She said these words (laughs) to the audience. And I'm on the show coaching the people, and she's telling everyone, all her viewers, to go out and buy the book. Oh, my God. Now, the book book had not been officially published, so there were no books in the stores. Oh, my God. So what happened is that the, the bookstores were getting these calls, and they were overloaded with calls, and they were saying, okay, we're just taking back loads. So Random House then put every other book on hold and started running the presses 24-7 to get this little book printed to be able to get it to the bookstores to get it in people's hands. Now, the avalanche that happened afterwards was completely overwhelming. I wasn't prepared for it at all, but I've not been prepared for most things that's happened, that's <laughs> yeah, happened right. in my life. So what's new? So all of a sudden, people start writing me. They start sending me letters and emails and saying, this book changed my life, um, profoundly different. Oh, my God, I've bought you know 30 copies of this book, and I'm giving it to everybody in my life so we can have conversations about the lessons and what we're learning and how we're growing and what life is teaching us. And this has helped me through my divorce, and this has helped me on my path, and now I figured out that I want to be a chiropractor. I mean, it was amazing. Wow. And I was completely blown away. Wow. Completely blown away. That that's that's incredible. Jill Jill just commented and said Dr. Cherie is a star and Oprah knew it. <laughs> it amazing. was a moment where I just you know, I was sitting in the green room, I remember, and I was meditating and I was just saying, you know, hey God, give me the right words to say, speak through me, use me as your vessel, I'm here to serve whatever is the right thing. Let me be your servant. And when I was on the show, I wasn't nervous because I knew that I was here to serve a larger, bigger purpose than I could ever imagine. That's and, that's incredible. That's incredible. You just repeated part of the prayer of um, the prayer of uh, Saint Francis, which is one of my favorites. Me too. I love that prayer. So, yeah. so, so after Oprah, um, they, they decided they better hurry up and publish your book. My God. Yeah. So, so after Oprah, you, you said it was an avalanche, like things just started going crazy. And, and I know that, that like that we could talk for hours, I'm sure. And, <laughs> and, and I'd love to talk to you I, as long I, I'm here as long as you want to stay. So this is, this is the internet. There is no sh- shut off button. Um, but so, you know, when, when, when this avalanche occurred and you're selling, I'm, I know you've sold, I, I believe you've sold over 4 million, 4 million copies of that book alone, right? Yeah, that's right. That's insane. Do you know how many people on the planet can say they've sold over 4 million copies of anything? <laughs> so that's in insane. 40 languages that's as well. That's insane. That's crazy. Like the wow. And and all because you were told you couldn't. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But but that can be a powerful driving force. Well, it's it was really amazing that I was coming out of the shadows. Yeah. 
And that's really what it what it was. You know, my publicist, Donna Gould, who was just wonderful to work with and is now retired, and I, I loved working with her. She was so enthusiastic and positive. She said to me when, when we found each other, you know, Sheree, I've had your rules, your rules for being human in my drawer for 10 years. And I said, well, Donna, consider me coming out of the drawer. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So I know you've, you've and again, I know you've, you've been on the stage and shared the stage with some amazing people like Jack Canfield and um, I, 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 you're so you're known worldwide. So, so let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> before we get to what's, what's coming up. I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. Number one, like, mm -hmm. um, what do you think the number one thing is, if there is a number one thing in your opinion, um, that keeps people see, uh, well, I'm not going to interject my opinion. What's the number one thing, in your opinion, that keeps people stuck? Fear. Okay. I believe it's fear. It's fear of uh, the consequences of them making a wrong move. It's fear of uh, making a fool of themselves. Fear of um, being alienated, alone, um, feeling judged or stupid or bullied it's it's a i think it's fear is the thing that keeps people from taking a step into the unknown because fear and trust are, are opposites and so if you trust yourself it bypasses the fear and if you're full of fear it actually eclipses the trust so i notice that fear is one of the biggest things that blocks people's belief in themselves and whatever their messages are wow so if somebody were to come to you and say, <clears throat> you know, um, maybe they're in a desperate place where, you know, and I've, I've been here, I've told this story before, having a, a vehicle repossessed in front of all my employees, that was cool. Um, but like, you know, like somebody gets stuck, they, 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 they don't know what to do, because I've been there where it's like, <clears throat> I know I have this talent. I know I have this skill set. I know I have the ability and, and, and I'm just paralyzed and I don't know what the first step is. What do you say to that person? Well, the first thing I say is let's not focus on the fear and the paralysis. Let's focus on you and what you enjoy and what you like and what's fun for you. And let's focus on the moments in your life when you really felt like your best self. Because that's what we want. We want to invite the best self to come forward. God, that's, that's incredible. That's, that's awesome. And I know you're right. Everybody on here knows you're right. So, so you have some pretty cool things happening right now. Um, do you want to talk about any of those? What's, what's coming up? Because you're like you're just like I'm going, man. We're going. Let's go. It's um, okay. So right now we, I'll just give you a current picture, and then I'll give you a little future picture. Sure. So right now at this moment, we are present promoting, producing, and presenting our courses, both our coach training, our inner negotiation workshop, and a variety of other 
skills and programs for organizations and individuals in San Francisco, Dubai, the Netherlands, Thailand, Singapore, Vietnam, and then for Cigna Healthcare. Now, we have 10 other people who have said they're ready, willing, and able to have us come to their country and support them in launching the work where they live, from Canada to Pakistan. Wow. So uh, what I'm looking for, and maybe we can just say this to your viewers and listeners, yeah. is a person or a team of people or even a company that is passionate about the work that we do who wants to, quote, partner with us for this expansion period. Now, one of your friends is also one of my friends. His name is Steve Carlos. Yeah. And Steve and his team are taking the work that we've been doing for these almost 45 years and creating a rebranding of it. Yeah. And they're, I mean, they're doing an absolutely brilliant job, I yes. believe. Yeah. It's, it's beyond my wildest imaginings. And it, it, there's several concepts that go together. But we're doing an online course which is going to have 12 modules of videotapes and a workbook that I will walk people through the seven barriers to happiness by allowing them to create their own new operating system utilizing emotional safety. Now, do these do these steps remove the viruses? Because <laughs> we know we know there's a lot of viruses up there, right? Yes. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what they do. They look at the viruses. Maybe it's a motherboard that wasn't properly wired. Maybe it's hackers. Maybe it's you know whatever it happens to be. Yeah. The old belief systems, the fear, uh, the confusion, the doubt. Um, anything that is blocking them from being their best self and allowing that to come forward and be in charge of their life. So that's part of the work that we're doing with Steve, which is going to be not only this online course, but it's also going to be a book, and it's going to be a launch next year in 2019. So all of that is in the R&D phase, and tomorrow we start videotaping the course. That's awesome. So excited. That's awesome. That's so awesome. So now you already have some some online training available if you want to tell everybody where they can access yeah. that and get access to it. Yes, it's called our MMS, which is the name of our company, MMS Institute. But it's called MMSVT.com. MMS. And VT stands VT, okay. which stands for virtual training. Yep. So in the virtual, I've, I've recorded 130 modules. It's a subscription program. It's incredibly affordable. You can sign up for one month or three months or 12 months, whatever you want, to be able to have access to me and the information 24-7 just at your fingertips. And people like it because the modules are in about five-minute segments. So it's not an overload. It's not like you have to tune in for hours and hours. It's a five-minute um, infusion of content and inspiration to allow the person to focus and lift themselves up to a new level, a new insight, a new opportunity 
to be able to see with new eyes and maybe consider that new operating system. So it has little quizzes afterwards to measure their focus. You can't do this and be multitask, but it's a subscription program that's available to everyone on planet Earth. MMSVT.com. MMSVT.com. Yeah, and all they need is a credit card, and it's done deal. Awesome. That's awesome. I have it up on the screen right now, just so you know. I have I have the MMS, M, and we're talking Mary, Mary, Steve, VT.com, right? Yes, and okay. they can sign up for one course if they want, like a diversity course yeah. that we have available in eight modules, yeah. or they can sign up for interviewing skills or communication skills or coach training skills. There's There are 20 different courses That's that awesome. they have available to them to sign up for. And I did that. At one point, because I thought that Bradley had put together such a brilliant platform that I was not willing for it to pass me by. Wow. That's awesome. That's so awesome. So, so, and because somebody just asked about that, so that's why I wanted to bring that to everybody's attention. So, um, so you have like, and there's something you told me about in, was it in, um, where was it? Was it in Singapore? Something coming out? Uh, I I um I don't know. Maybe it's something you don't even want to talk about. So my I don't no, remember I, what it's okay. <clears throat> okay, so a couple things. Number one, there's also for people who are involved in like coaching, if yeah. they're coaches and they need continuing education credits, I have on a platform called X extracredits.com. Yep. And I have four hours of continuing education credit in the coaching profession that are approved by the International Coach Federation because all of our courses are ICF accredited. Wow. So our coach trainings and our continuing education credits, all ICF accredited. So if people want more credits, they can have exposure to me through extracredits.com. Now, that's X. Extra credits, not EX, just so extra credits with an S. I'm putting that up on the screen as well right now so people can um, extra. Yeah, that's um, Lisa, right? Lisa Patrick, exactly. Extracredits.com. Dot, just extracredits.com or extracredits, is it VT.com? Extracredits. I believe that's what it is, extracredits.com. Okay, okay. I'll um, put that up there. And if, if if need be, I'm sure they can Google it and it'll pop up. So I have mmsvt.com or extracredits.com to get um, the, coach, the coaching uh, um, credits, right? Yes, exactly. Awesome. So if, um, if they want our, you know, 74 modules on coaching – which they can take as a precursor to our coach training, that's available for them, and that will give them an orientation. If they want the extra credits, they go to Lisa Patrick at extracredits.com and sign up for our four modules, our four units. That's awesome. So so anything else that you would like to share with, with my audience before before we – come to our conclusion. Okay. I don't want this to end, but I don't want to, I, I value your time. So thank you. Thank you. It's one little thing that I want to share. That's a dream for me. 
And you know that my beginning started out in theater. Yes. And you know how passionate I was and have been throughout my life about theater. Yeah. So when we started doing the intergotiation workshop, people started creating ways to be able to process and deal with issues, incidents in their lives where they experienced loss or yeah. bullying or um, where they got stuck. And I know your program is about breaking through walls. Yeah. And the inner negotiation workshop helps people in two days to break through the walls that have been constructed in their lives by themselves and others to be able to free themselves from those shackles from the past. Now, over the years, my dear sister Lynn Stewart and I have been conducting this workshop, and now we have many people who do it around the world. We said, oh, gosh, this is a great theater. So we started scripting it. And the first little vignette was the woman who can't say no. She has no boundaries, can't say no to people. She's a people pleaser, wants everyone to be happy, and everyone to like her. So we scripted that little vignette because we watched it. And then there's the person who always heard no. And then there's the person who can't lose weight. And we started actually writing these little vignettes and then weaving them together with a storyline and we have a musical. That's awesome. I didn't even know all those details. <laughs> so That's awesome. In May thirtieth, twenty nineteen, we will be producing the musical in Bangkok, Thailand in a theater that we've already put a down payment on. That's... We have a producer, we have a director, we have a, a production manager. We have a choreographer. We have initial actors who want to be in it and singers. We're going to be holding auditions. And it's going to be a full-blown production for the world premiere, oh May 30th, God. 2019, Bangkok, Thailand. So what I want your listeners and viewers to know is if you've ever dreamed about coming to Thailand, this is your excuse and your reason I to see a world it. premiere. I absolutely love it. So now we talked about this. I get backstage passes, right? <laughs> of course, Ken. Of course. I love it. Jill and I will be in Bangkok, Thailand for that. That is a goal. We're setting that target. We're going to make that happen. And you guys, everybody watching this, you need to. That's awesome. I didn't know yeah. the storyline. Like, that's yeah. incredible. It's, it's full circle. It's connecting all the dots back. And so now we had a call this morning before us with our team of people, um, our fundraising expert, our director, our whole team coming together on Skype to be able to look at, okay, so – who would be interested in sponsoring this? Which corporations? Which individuals? Who would like to be able to sponsor this musical? Because we'll be raising money to pay for it because we've been investing all our own money up until now. And so it's time to be able to open it up to other people who really want to be a part of it. Some people will come. Some people will you know, be uh, sponsors with their company name up in the programs and maybe on the tickets and promotion and through the publicity, et cetera. So that's the next phase. That's, that's incredible. So are you doing all the promoting too, or you have a team helping well, you? Well, team, and I'll be meeting with the PR firm on the 24th of October in 
Thailand. It's one of the five big firms. And they're so excited about it that it's original material and original songs and never been produced before. So that's the next stage. And, and I'm sure that they know how to do this much better than I do. So I'm... I'm just trusting the message and taking that risk and stepping out there uh, onto the ledge. I'm just blown away. You know, I, and, and, and the, the, the father in me, I, I, you know, the, 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 the coach in me, the, I just want to like give you a virtual hug and a high five and say like, Congratulations! You're like you're you're you. you're you're literally. I see your little girl coming out, and that's incredible. I love it. Yeah, that's totally awesome. excited. I freaking love it. That's amazing. Okay, so first, let's talk about. Um, and I think most of the audience knows you're a client of mine. We're rebuilding your your website for you. Um, Absolutely. Let's, let's talk about how. Um, everybody can follow you like everybody's going to want to follow you so how how do they follow you where's the best place that's where i would defer to you because you're more the expert in followership than i am facebook <laughs> let's start with facebook um, okay let's let's start with facebook and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna move you into the other the other layers of of social media but um, let's start start with Facebook. So look up Dr. Cherie on Facebook and follow her. She is, as you can tell, an amazing light in this world that's so needed, so needed. I am so grateful and thankful that you came on the show. Wow. Oh, thank, thank you for having me. I'm so grateful to you for inviting me. It's really a treat to have our conversation and to be able to explore, you know, the world. You know, one thing you didn't ask me, Oh. And and I want to just answer it because I think it's important. Yeah. And it's what was the thing that motivated me consistently that was the seed planted in childhood. And I think it's, it was my mother who was a negative, positive role model. And my mother was an alcoholic. Oh. And when I watched her life, I felt as if I don't want to grow up and become my mother. Mm. I want to grow up and become more like my father and I want to be able to make a difference. And I know that following in her footsteps will not do that. So I'm grateful to my mother for showing me what I didn't want to become wow. and for motivating me to follow my path, even though the first 20 years of my life I was totally outer centered. But I found my direction. I found my compass. And that's what I do with other people is help them find their compass. God, that that's so powerful. And I told you I was going to ask you that question, and I forgot. I'm just so mesmerized with your stories, and we we went on this journey, and I lost that one. But I am so, so grateful and honored to have you as a guest on the show. I'd like to have you back, as a matter of fact. I'd love to have you come sure. back on after we start, you know, some of the other things that are that are getting ready to start happening. I think yeah. let's and let's fill that theater in in uh, Thailand. Let's fill. I love it. it. Well, you're in charge, and I will follow your lead. You're amazing. Thank you so much, so much. And don't hang up on on Skype. But I wanna I wanna thank everybody because a lot of people on Facebook have shared this out to their friends and family. So thank you all so much, so so much, Doctor Cherie. Thank you so much for coming on.
Thank you, Ken. Everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.